This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that uh, you are filled with the Spirit, ready to focus and concentrate on the teaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of history. You are the God who, from eternity past, has declared the end from the beginning. You are the God who is working out your purposes in human history in order to vindicate your integrity, in order to demonstrate your love, your justice, your righteousness, and your grace. And Father, it is in our understanding of your purposes in human history that we see our own uh, role that we see how we fit within the framework of the church and our witness as individual believers in that uh, greater angelic conflict. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to worship you as we see in this book of Revelation, this worship and praise to you is fundamental to the role of a creature in recognizing, giving honor to the Creator. Father, we pray that as we study your word this morning that you would help us to understand these things, that we might gain a greater appreciation for who you are, what you have done, and our role within uh, your plan. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I've already had a couple of questions this morning. Might as well address them. Also gets it out on tape on the Internet. Uh, about some of the things that are going on in the future. The last Sunday uh, that will be here will be no, Sunday, November the 14th, and then we will be in the process of moving for three or four weeks and not show up in Houston. Well, we'll show up in Houston, but I won't begin to teach down there until uh, about the 10th of December. There will be an installation service on the 10th of, of uh, December, which is a Friday evening, and then I will also teach that Saturday and then also a Sunday evening. The new church down there is meeting in a Baptist church. So we don't have our own facilities, so we can't meet on Sunday morning because that's the only time they use uh, their auditorium. So the new church meets on Sunday night, and once I get there, it will be Sunday night and Tuesday night. Uh, with uh, Christmas and New Year's coming up so closely, we decided just to go with two classes and then I leave for Kiev on the 13th of January and will be gone the last two weeks of January. 
And when I return the 1st of February, then I will teach three times a week, Sunday night, Tuesday night, and Thursday night, until we get our own facility, our own building. Uh, the ministry, Dean Bible Ministries, is moving to Houston. We have a new address that will be posted on the website. We'll get it in the bulletin here so that you can uh, order either through the mail that way or through the website. There will continue to be a link from the Preston City Bible Church website to both West Houston Bible Church and Dean Bible Ministries for some time. And there will be a gradual transition. Jeff and Lori are going to continue to put out cassettes from up here for at least the next five or six months. That will be a a transition time to get for before we get everything moved uh, down south. So they'll still be uh, doing that work up here. We'll uh, probably go to a higher level of intensity with DVD. Uh, the Lord has provided through various means I won't go into here, but he's provided some great equipment down there that it surpasses what we have here. And so the hope is that they'll be able to produce a quality DVD in short order. They already have some equipment, and we just picked Or I don't know. Do you know if your dad got that mixer? Now, we had a mixer on eBay that we were uh, going after, a brand-new uh, mixer for video, and so um, I haven't heard from Jim if we got it, but we should be picking that up, uh, you know, any day now. And they're practicing. In fact, when I was down there in September, they set up one camera and produced a DVD from the conference when I was there. So the next issue is going to be duplication and distribution once we start cranking a, uh, a good quality uh, DVD. So that's the plan, and we'll just see how the Lord provides. Now, we're going to continue, as I said, with where I leave off here. Once I get down there, they, the, the group down there listens to Revelation Genesis, and they're about four, to, four weeks behind in Genesis and about eight weeks behind in Revelation. So when I get down there, I will probably have a couple of weeks of review, and then we'll be just right back on track. So we'll continue with where I leave off uh, here in another uh, three or four weeks. Now, having said that, we need to get back to our subject in Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, introduces us to a new section in this apocalypse, the Revelation. And these two chapters deal with the subject of things that are, that is, what's going on in the church age. Now, before we get into details on this, we still, I'm still spending some time understanding What's happening in the structure of these short epistles addressed to the angel? And I've gone through this several times, and we're going to kind of wrap it up this morning, building a case for the fact that we must preserve the integrity of the term angelos. That's fundamental. It's interesting, yesterday I was... uh, uh, got on the phone and had to talk to Charlie Clough about a couple of things, and everybody here knows Charlie. And so we were talking about this and that and the other thing that's coming up, and and um, there was something in the back of my mind that still is that I needed to talk to him about or ask him about, and I couldn't think of it, and I just, as I was closing out the conversation after about 30 minutes or so, I said, well, maybe it had, maybe it had something to do with the angels in Revelation. And he said, great, let's talk about that. He said, my pastor down there in Maryland is is just started teaching Revelation. 
and he wanted me. To, he does. I, I, the guy has a little training, not a lot of training. Knows a little Greek, but he wanted Charlie to read ahead in the in the Greek text, translate through Revelation, and kind of alert him to issues and things, and sort of uh, uh, be a sounding board for him to to. Uh, 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 talk with about issues in, in Revelation. So Charlie's been translating through the first, and he's up to about chapter five, and he's been working through this. And he said, "Well, what is, going, what is in the world is going on with this angel in chapter two and chapter three? Is that a literal angel? Is that the pastor? What do you think?" And so I went back through all of my arguments, and his conclusion was, "He said, Robbie, I think you've really nailed this." And he said, because what you've done is preserve the, and I got the, term, the phrase right from him, because you've preserved the integrity of the term angelos. See, this is the bottom line, is when you come along and you see a word, and as I pointed out before, if we have difficulty understanding why an angel would be included in the address of this, these epistles, these short notes, if we say, well, I can't understand why it would be written to an angel, therefore it must not be an angel. We create, we have begun with a methodological flaw. And that is because we can't quite comprehend why a word would be used a certain way, we automatically and too quickly jump to the conclusion that it must not mean what it means everywhere else in the book. Sixty-seven times. In the book of Revelation, we have this word angelos. Seven times in Revelation 2 and 3 to the angel of these churches. And then uh, twice or once in Revelation 1 where we read in verse 20 that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So aside from those eight uses, the other 59 uses in the book of Revelation all refer to the supernatural order of created beings that we find in in God's creation that we refer to as angels. But that still leaves us with the question of why, what's going on here? Why do the angels get this information? And, in fact, it was a good thing in the conversation with Charlie yesterday. I had been looking around for a particular verse and hadn't come up with it, and he he said, well, that fits exactly with what happens in Deuteronomy 32.1. I said, that's the verse I've been trying to get to. So... Just the principle of iron sharpens iron. What, let's have a little review. What we've seen so far is the word angelos, the Greek word angelos, which is the word that is translated angel, is a word that, from standard Greek usage, that means messenger, angelos, A-N-G-E-L-L-O-S, actually it's a double L there, angelos, or is it one L? My spelling's off this morning. Angelos. Basic meaning is messenger from the Hebrew. Uh, Malaak. M-A-L-A apostrophe A-K. Also meaning messenger. Which indicates something about the essential role of the angels in terms of carrying out missions given to them by God. They're not just created for the simple purpose of sitting around in heaven and praising God, but they were given roles to perform. And what we see is God created them before he created the universe. Job 38, 4 through 7 says that the sons of God, which is a technical term for angels, the sons of God 
all the sons of God shouted for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth. So this tells us that they were created before the earth was created, uh, before the universe was created. And they had a role in the, the pre-Genesis 1-1 universe. What that was, we're not told. But we are told that at some point, after the creation of the universe and before the events of Genesis 1-1, or excuse me, 1-2 through the end of the chapter, that the highest of the angels, named Lucifer, whom we call Lucifer, fell into arrogance, lusted after the power and the authority of God, and enticed one-third of the angels to follow him in a rebellion against God. So at some time in eternity past, you have this angelic revolt that breaks out, and we don't know how long it lasted between the time that, that sin was discovered in Lucifer to the time that God holds a trial. But apparently God holds a trial because in Matthew 25:41 we are told by Jesus in a statement about the that that the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. So it's already been created. It is determined that the devil and his angels are destined for the lake of fire. That's their punishment. That has been a decree from the justice of God from the supreme court of heaven that the devil and his angels would be confined to this punishment of eternity in the lake of fire. Well, the question then is, if God has created the lake of fire, and God has already determined that that's their destiny, that is the judicial sentence, why then has this been postponed? Why aren't they there now? What is going on? They're not even cast out of heaven yet. We don't see the devil and his angels evicted from heaven until the midpoint of the tribulation. They still have access to heaven. Job 1 pictures this convocation, this assembly of all the sons of God, which includes both the devil, the, the angels of the devil and his angels and the demons, and it also includes the holy angels, the elect angels. So they still have access to heaven. So the question is, what's going on here? The answer is that God is demonstrating certain things about his integrity, about his justice, his righteousness, his love, and his grace. He's demonstrating certain things through the experiment of the human race so that the entirety of human history is a demonstration of the integrity, the righteousness, and justice of God. So what does this do? This is so important for us to to focus our thinking on reality because what we're describing here is how to understand the whole purpose and structure of, of human history. And within that is your life and my life as members of the church. What is God doing here as a church? Because what we're seeing in, in these seven letters to the seven churches is that there is an evaluation process that's coming from the Supreme Court of Heaven related to each corporate entity of a local church. These are directed to corporate local churches, so it's not just the church at Smyrna, the church of Thyatira, the church of Ephesus, but it's the church of Preston City, the West Houston Bible Church, North Stonington Bible Church. Each congregation has an accountability within the framework of the, of the angelic conflict. It's not just you as an individual believer. And this takes us back to a principle that I kept emphasizing again and again and again when we went through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, the context of spiritual gifts, is that the body of Christ is important. It's not just you as an individual believer in your spiritual life. 
That's important. But in the Bible, you also have this emphasis on corporate life of the local church. The Jesus Christ instituted the local church. He didn't institute just individual believers as members of the church. And 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the fact that we are members of one another. And this flies in the face of a lot of, uh, uh, especially in America, the emphasis on rugged individualism and personal responsibility. That's there. But there's also this other factor, and that is a corporate reality that we're members of one another. We're to pray for one another, teach one another, encourage one another, admonish one another. This is the life of the congregation. And what we see in Revelation 2 and 3 is that there is an evaluation of the corporate life of a local church. This isn't talking about just the individuals. It's talking about the evaluation statement of a local congregation. So there is a, a, a evaluation for individual believers, but there's also evaluation for them within the framework of a, of a local church entity. And within this context, what we see is that the angels are observing us, and we've seen several passages that emphasize that. Angels are observing us as, conf- as confirmatory witnesses, as legal witnesses, of what, how God interacts with his creatures in human history within the framework of this overall trial in heaven. So what happens is that you have the fall of Satan in eternity past. And there's an appeal. And so God says, okay, I'm going to demonstrate my justice. Well, let's set a broader category. I'm going to demonstrate my integrity. In other words, that... I am completely fair, honest, and correct in my procedures of sentencing you and your followers to an eternity in a horrendous death in the lake of fire. And so I'm going to demonstrate the, the consequences of what you have done in rebelling against me, that it's not just the very fact of rebellion, but it rips the, the uh, fabric of the universe in such a way that it introduces unforeseen, untold unforeseen suffering and consequences throughout eternity. So the challenges to the integrity of God, which includes His righteousness, which is the standard of God's character. It includes, secondly, His justice, which is the application of that standard. It includes His love, which is the... Uh, foundation of his relationship to his creatures, all of which is expressed in grace. So Satan is challenging that by saying, God, you're just not giving us a fair shake. You're not giving me an opportunity to show what I can do. I can run things better than you can. And the creature can become the creator. It sounds like the same lie he told Eve in the garden. You can be like God. See, that's what he wanted to be. So this sets the framework. Now notice, You've got righteousness and justice as foundational and divine integrity. So we're looking at a scenario that relates to legality. This is a framework for understanding all of history. What what comes out of this legal structure that there is this appeal trial? Well, first of all, let's look at uh, let's look at what the scriptures emphasize. From the very beginning, we see that there is an emphasis on covenant. We talked about this briefly in the first hour in relation to, to Scripture. But a covenant is a legal document that is that 
put certain obligations on the party of the first part and the party of the second part. And so what God does is he enters into these legal contractual relationships with man because that's what a covenant is. It is a contract. Only the God of the Bible enters into a contract with the human race. You don't find this with the God of Mormonism, with Allah, with uh, uh, any of the gods in the uh, Hindu pantheon, uh, any of the gods of the Greek pantheon. They don't enter into a legal contractual relationship which is verifiable. This, this emphasizes the trustworthiness of God. I'm, God is binding himself to certain conditions. He is willing to do that because it is going to be a, a witness within this overall appeal trial that God is faithful to those covenant, those legal stipulations that he outlines in his contracts with man. Second thing that we see is that in terms of salvation... Salvation is frequently portrayed in terms of legal language. We have terms like uh, imputation, justification, even the terms forgiveness are all couched in Scripture within the framework of legal language. I'm picking this out of order, but even the idea of sin is often couched in legal language, failure to uh, fulfill God's law. We have, uh, in terms of the role of Jesus, uh, of, of Satan, Satan, as the name of Satan, is a, uh, a legal accuser. It's like a, process, like a, um, a legal accuser in a courtroom, that he's pictured like a prosecutor who is making a case against God's people. And then we look at the picture of Jesus Christ, for example, in 1 John 2, 1, and he is our advocate. So once again, we have this legal language. And this is where people in our era really mess up because ever since, with, with the rise of the subjectivism that came out of the 19th century shift in uh, 19th century liberalism uh, and with the rise of modern psychology... All of this, the emphasis is on how you feel. You know, I love read a great editorial online this last week by Michelle Malkin. I don't know if you ever read Michelle Michelle Malkin, but she's a uh, conservative uh, 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 writer, uh, syndicated columnist, and she's comparing the women of this generation and the whining about the fact that they're having to send their husbands and their sons off to fight a war in Iraq and not understanding the war, the global war on terrorism versus the kind of self-sacrifice that was seen in the, by the women in World War II. And uh, one of the lines she said is, well, the women, did, women during the World War II generation, Rosie the Riveter, never complained about not having enough me time. And see, we live in an era when people are so self-absorbed and so focused on their own emotions and how they feel that that, works itself out in all kinds of areas. It's, it's destructive to marriage because you often hear complaints from, it happens on both sides, well, you know, this just isn't right for me or somehow I'm not fulfilling my potential in this marriage. And, and the way thing, the problems are couched is, is how it makes me feel right now. And so everything is viewed in this kind of subjective relational framework. And that's a key word. I remember one of my professors at seminary, uh, t- when, and 
I think it was in Soteriology, was talking about how there had been a big shift that had taken place in the history of Christianity. For example, in the Reformation, when you talk about salvation, it was couched in terms of justification. What was Martin Luther's cry but justification by faith alone? That was the issue for three centuries was justification by faith alone. Salvation was presented in terms of justification, that a person had to receive the righteousness of Christ in order to be justified, in order to be declared just before God, before the Supreme Court of Heaven. And so the issue was understanding this concept of legality. But what what do you find today? You, you, you want to make Jesus your friend? You invite Jesus into your heart? You need to have a relationship with God? The focus is all relational. The gospel is presented in terms of subjective, emotional, psychological verbiage. It's what does Jesus do for you? How you can have a relationship with God? How you can experience the love of God in your life? All of this is subjective, me-oriented, Verbiage and it, it, it's it's the psychologizing and subjectivizing and so, uh, of the gospel. It makes it a it presents it within a, a framework that appeals to human uh, arrogance and self-absorption, and we lose this whole concept that is presented in the Bible of legality. And as a result of failure to meet the legal stipulations, the consequences are is that there's legal condemnation and judgment. Those terms, condemnation and judgment, are terms that are related to, uh, to guilt before a courtroom. It's not that God is, is mad and he's just up there throwing a temper tantrum, but that he, his, his righteousness has been violated and therefore his, his justice must uh, condemn man and bring punishment on man. And this is brought to completion in human history in the period of the tribulation, which is referred to both as the time of the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of God. And those terms, are wrath, are the terms for judicial condemnation. Just as we sometimes say in a courtroom setting that we've experienced the wrath of the judge. Well, it's not that we're saying that the judge has gotten angry and emotional. That's the last thing we want is an emotional judge. You want a judge who is impartial, a judge who is objective. But when he throws the book at you and you experience the full weight of the law against you, that's the wrath of the court. It is simply an idiom for expressing the fact that you have felt the full force of the law against you. And so angels are part of the dispensing of God's judgment, and they are also witnesses to the fact in history that God's righteousness and justice and love are consistent in their operation, and that God is demonstrating in his dealings with the human race that that the failures, that, that, that when man sins, or anyone sins, it brings about such great consequences such horrible consequences of sin and suffering, that God is completely justified in condemning creatures to eternity in the lake of fire. This is the overall structure of the angelic conflict. And so we see this in the role of angels in Revelation. And the question that we have to address in any kind of Bible study 
is that when you look at a phrase like to the angel of the church of Ephesus or Smyrna or Thyatira, Pergamum, Sardis, uh, Philadelphia or Laodicea, you have to say, okay, within the framework of the book of, Re- of Revelation, what do angels do? Because what I'm arguing here is that the role of angels in these letters is not different, any different from the role the angels play in the rest of the book of Revelation. So let's just do a survey uh, this morning of what ha- what angels do in the book of Revelation. So let's turn over the first mention of, of the term angel after we get out of chapter 3 is in the uh, heavenly scene in chapter 4 and 5. Chapter 4 and 5 picture what ha- what is taking place in the heavenly courtroom at the beginning of the tribulation. Chapter 4 begins with John saying, After these things, I uh, behold the doors, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. So this is a, this is the rapture, as it were. And John is in the throne of God. And the major event that's taking place here is that there is a scroll that is mentioned in 5.1. And this scroll is written on the inside and on the outside. And it's this scroll is the document. It's presented as a legal document that is outlining the charges against the human race, as it were. And it is sealed with seven seals. And there's a strong angel. This is our first mention of angel. There is a strong angel who proclaims who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And the question is, who is qualified to take this legal document, which is a condemnation on the human race for their rejection of God, who is qualified to execute the the judicial sentence against the human race? That's the thrust of this question. So the angel is functioning within the framework of a court, something like a bailiff. Who's qualified to execute this judgment? And we're told that no one in heaven or earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And John begins to weep, and and uh, an angel comes to him and says, Don't weep. There is one who is worthy, and that this is the Lamb. And the Lamb comes forward, and the Lamb is worthy to open the seal. And you have this praise of the Lamb given in verse 9. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood and out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and made us, made them kings and priests to their God and they shall, are to our God and they shall reign on the earth. There's some textual problems there we'll get to, uh, when we study the passage. And then John says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then they're praising God. So this is the second picture we see, is that as a result of Jesus, the Lamb, coming forward to take the scroll, there is praise. The angels, thousands upon thousands, myriads upon myriads, um, call out to him, praising him because he is worthy to execute this judgment on the on the human race for their disobedience. The next picture we see of angels is in Revelation chapter 7. Chapter 6 describes the first sealed judgments. And then we're told, after these things, John says, I saw four angels 
standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. So they are being used by God in the execution of this judgment. They're holding back the wind so that no wind is going to blow. Can you imagine the meteorological consequences of no wind? This is when we need Charlie Clough in here. No wind. What's that going to do to climate? What's that going to do to crops? What's that going to do to agriculture? What effect is that going to have on um, on any number of, of uh, different ele- aspects of the environment? And these are those four particular angels. And then in verse 2, John says, I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cries with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and sea, and said, Don't harm the earth and sea yet until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So this angel is going to seal or put a divine protection, uh, some sort of divine capsule around the 144,000 to protect them so they aren't harmed from the environmental damage that is going to be executed by these other four angels. So what we see here is the role of angels in terms of executing blessing and executing judgment, both of which come from the integrity of God. God, From his justice, he either blesses or condemns. So they're carrying out the judicial operation of God. Then in verse 11, we see angels mentioned again, and again they're worshiping before God. Um, they're crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. So angels are involved in revelation. They're involved in, I mean, they're involved in worship. They're involved in judgment. They're involved in carrying out blessing. And one thing I didn't mention because I didn't go back to the beginning. We started in chapter 4. Is that angels are used in, to communicate revelation. Go back. We've studied many times Revelation 1.1 where the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to display to, the, to, uh, to his servants things which must quickly take place. And he communicated it by sending his angel. So angels are used to communicate and disclose uh, God's revelation. So we're building our categories here. Uh, Revelation 8, 7, angels stand, there's seven angels who stand, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 8, there are seven angels in verse 2 who stand before God and they are given seven trumpets. So these are going to blow on their trumpets and that each of those trumpets announce another judgment. Then in verse 3, we're told about another angel who holds a censer. Now this is interesting. Censer is a, is a is a golden uh, bowl that holds the incense, and as the incense burns, it is a, the smoke rises, and this is a picture of the prayers of the saints rising to God. Well, what are the prayers of the saints as we've seen to this point in Revelation? The saints are praying that God will execute judgment on the planet. How long, O oh Lord? How long are the righteous going to suffer? That's their prayer. When are you going to finally execute judgment on evildoers on the planet? And so this angel is holding the censer, and the picture we see then is verse 3, He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. 
This is a picture of executing the judgment that's been called for by the prayers of the saints. And he's going to pour out, the picture is he pours out this fire on the earth, and there were noises and thunderings, lightnings, and earthquakes. So the role of the angel, again, is executing judgment on the planet. Uh, verse uh, 13. Then we have, uh, or verse in 6 and following, we have the seven angels beginning to blow on their seven tr- uh, trumpets. The first angel uh, sounds his trumpet in verse 7, the second angel in verse 8, the third angel in verse 10, the fourth angel in verse 12, and then in verse 13 we have three left. Then John says, Behold, I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. These are the last three trumpet judgments. Each one's a woe. Uh, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So again, he is announcing judgment on the planet. Then in uh, chapter 9, verse 1, we have the fifth trumpet. Look at this. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw what? A star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him, see, this isn't a literal star, it's a him. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit. Smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, so the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke locusts came, and, and these are these various demons that are released at this time. But the star that falls from heaven is an angel. This is another confirmation of the fact that, and this is one thing that locks it, locks down the meaning of the word, is that you have in Revelation 1.20, seven stars, and those seven stars equal the seven angels of the seven churches. And the term star in, in the scripture is, either refers to a literal star, or in Genesis 37, Revelation I think it's Revelation 12. We have it representing the, the uh, tribes of Israel. But in numerous passages such as Job 38, 4 through 7, uh, this passage in Revelation uh, 9, 1, and then we'll see in a minute Revelation to, uh, a reference to the dragon taking a third of the stars with him. That refers to the angels. So star refers to the angels. You never have the term star used metaphorically refer to human leaders or to human beings. Therefore, you have, a, you have the birth, for those who claim that the angel of the seven churches is the pastor or a human messenger, they have, the burden of proof is on them to demonstrate somewhere, anywhere in scripture where star, where this star angel combination can refer to a human being. It can't. Lexically, it cannot. I mean, you might as well go be a liberal and reinterpret the constitution as a living document. You're playing with the words and you're changing the meaning in order to get that. And you have to stick with how words are used in Scripture. So it pretty much locks it down. Uh, chapter, chapter 9, the fifth trumpet, you have a star, that uh, an angel that comes to heaven to open the abyss. What's he doing? He's executing judgment. He's going to release this demonic locust horde on the earth that's going to bring about uh, judgment. The next mention of, of angels is in chapter 10, verse 1. I, stu- I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. I, I said earlier, we talked about the imagery in the Revelation chapter 1, that 
This is imagery of the throne of God, a rainbow. That's a picture of what's around the throne of God. Isaiah 6, um, Ezekiel, others, when they see the throne of God, they see a rainbow. This is, uh, signifies that he is a messenger from heaven. Now, when I mentioned this several weeks ago, I said, you know, there's a, the imagery here is so divine that I'm wondering if this could be the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's not. It is an angel, and all this imagery is emphasizing his divine authority. He is clothed with a cloud. A cloud represents uh, the throne of God again. A rainbow is on his head. His face was like the sun, his feet like the pillars of fire. That same imagery was used of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's, it's not limited to him. This is indicating that he is a messenger uh, from God, and he holds a little book in his hand. And this little book, we're not told what's in it, but this little book contains a, an indictment on the human race. And so he is indicting them and judging them. And John is told in verse 4 to seal this up. And uh, verse 5, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heavens and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. So he is declaring the end. This happens right at the end of the tribulation, announcing the seventh trumpet, which contains the seven bowl judgments. So this is probably the last six months of the tribulation uh, period. Then in chapter 12, we're told of angels again. There's a war in heaven uh, between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels which shows that the demons are, in fact, angels. And this is reference to the angelic conflict. And in verse 9, chapter 12, verse 9, the devil and his angels are cast out of heaven. And in verse 4, we have the reference to the fact that his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to the earth. Once again, stars equal angels. And so you have this this connection that locks in our interpretation and understanding of the meaning of the word angelos. So there's this war, and a third of the angels are cast out of heaven. This takes place halfway through the tribulation, and the demons are going to be cast to the earth, and you're going to walk along the earth, and we're going to see angel, uh, demons visible. But angels, holy angels, are also going to be visible. We're going to hear them. We're not, but uh, those in the tribulation are going to hear them. And this is seen in the next mention of angels in chapter 14, verse 6. Uh, then I looked, uh, 14.6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. See, here we have angels as evangelists. This is an angel that is going to be visible and is going to be audible in the tribulation, bringing another level of evangelism to the people during the tribulation. Angels are going to be witnessing to human beings during the tribulation. And believe me, millions of people are going to be saved during the tribulation. But part of it is going to be, there's going to be angelic evangelism. And uh, chapter 14, verse 8, another angel is seen. You have another angel, another angel. You have a bunch of angels in chapter 14. Another angel followed, saying Babylon has fallen. So he's announcing the judgment of Babylon, that great end-time empire that the Antichrist heads over against the kingdom of God. 
Verse 9, Then a third angel followed him, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his head, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. What's he announcing? If you line yourself up with the Antichrist, you're going to experience the judgment of God. So again, these angels are announcing judgment. Verse um, verse 15, Another angel comes out of the temple imploring the one on the cloud to thrust in his sequel and to reap. Now notice this. He comes out of the temple. Is this a temple in Jerusalem? No. Where's this temple? It's in heaven. So what we see is that there is a correspondence between heavenly realities and earthly realities. And this is a factor that we must understand to understand the role of these angels. There is a correspondence between the church on the earth and what's happening on the earth and some things that are happening in heaven. And as I pointed out last time, it's not that these seven letters are being written to the angel and then the angel delivers it to the church, but that the whole book of Revelation is being sent by John to the seven churches, but these these letters, which we'll see in a minute, are critique or judicial evaluation sheets, almost like indictments, except they're positive. Indictments generally we think of as negative. These have a positive aspect to them. So these are being posted to the heavenly angel in relationship to the heavenly courtroom trial. But they're also being sent to the to the churches. So we have this angel coming out of the temple, imploring the one on the cloud to thrust in his sickle and reap. And then in verse 17, another angel comes out of the temple, carrying a sharp sickle. And then in verse 18, even another angel comes out from the altar who has power over fire, and he cries to the one who has the sharp sickle to thrust in the sharp sickle, uh, into the, the human history and to execute judgment. And then in verse 19, that angel with the sharp sickle mentioned in verse 17 executes the judgment and, and inserts the sharp sickle of judgment into human history. And then in chapter 15, we're introduced to seven more angels. These angels uh, carry the seven bold judgments. Each has uh, one of these plagues. And the bowls are filled with the wrath of God. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, angels are mentioned again. And uh, these angels are now with the seven bowls are commanded to pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. And they begin to uh, carry out their role of executing these seven bowl judgments. And then in chapter 17, verse 1, there's an angel who comes to John. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. What's this angel doing? He's saying, Come, witness the judgment. Again, he's involved in judgment. Uh, Chapter 18, verse 1, Another angel comes along. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was illuminated with his glory, and he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon, the great is fallen has fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. What's he doing? He's announcing the execution of God's judgment on Babylon. Once again, angels are involved with the execution of divine judgment. Uh, chapter 20, verse 1. Is the, or, or, excuse me, I skipped one. 1917, uh, an angel announces the gathering of the final judgment at Armageddon in r- very interesting imagery. And verse 17, the angel, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, 
And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. All these carrion-eating birds. There's going to be a mighty battle, and many dead bodies come and eat. So he announces the judgment that has finalized the battle of Armageddon. Then in 20, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, that is the abyss, and a great chain in his hand, and he lays hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So what's he doing? He's executing judgment. And then uh, chapter 21, verse 9, the next mention of angels. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues. Notice, and now we're beyond the millennial kingdom by now. We're into the new heaven and new earth, but John still identifies this angel as an angel who is involved in the judgment of the seven plagues. And he came to me and he said, Come and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. So the angel is used to... Again, in the realm of revelation to show him the, the bride, the Lamb of God, the church. I mean, the bride of the Lamb of God. He's showing him the church, the Lamb's wife. And then in chapter uh, 22, we have two mentions of angels. So crucial. At the very beginning, the first verse, as I mentioned already, says, Jesus Christ communicated this by sending his angel to John. And this is stated twice in verse 22. Verse 6, Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Angels were involved in revelation. But who is it that appears to John on Isle of Patmos? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice you have this... this um, Dual element. This is what we find in Galatians 3.19. Why the law then? It was added because of our transgressions, Paul writes, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. Now, wait a minute. Did you see any angels on Mount Sinai? Cecil B. DeMille did a fairly decent job of uh, visualizing the pillar of fire carving out with the finger of God, the Ten Commandments on the side of the mountain. There was Charlton Heston uh, cowering on the uh, on the ledge there. I think a great image. But guess what? You don't see any angels there, do you? You don't see any angels in Exodus 19 or 20. But yet Paul says angels were there. The law was given through the agency of angels. So you see this this angelic element there. Not only that, but the passage. That, that Charlie mentioned to me yesterday, which was the one I was, I, I'd been thinking, rattling around the back of my head, is in Deuteronomy 32.1. At the end of Deuteronomy, which is a, a reiteration of the law, Moses' parting sermon to the nation, at the end he says, Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Deuteronomy 32.1. What's he, what is Moses saying? He's calling upon the angels in heaven and the people on the earth to be witnesses to the legal contract that God is making with Israel. So all of this is set within this legal, this legal framework within the overall uh, appeal trial of Satan. So what does this mean in conclusion? What this means in conclusion is that lexical evidence clearly indicates that the angel-star combination must indicate a real angel. Now, the next question that we've been addressing is, why do the angels need to know this? 
because the angels are being witnesses to God's justice. This is the imagery that we have in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus appears clothed with the garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Later on, when you look at the description of the seven angels who pour out the bowl judgments, how are they described? They're clothed with a white garment with a, and girded about the chest with a golden band. See, this is a picture of judgment. This is a picture of the of Jesus in Revelation 1 as the judge of the high court, and the angels are clothed the same way because they are the agents of that judgment. Now, the picture in Revelation 1 is that Jesus, clothed in a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band, with head and his hair white as wool, white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, out of his mouth proceeds the sharp two-edged sword, the rompia sword, which is a sword of judgment. This is a picture of Jesus as the priest king, I mean the priest judge, operating where? He's walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which are the churches. It is a function of the integrity of God towards the local church in the process and in the scope of the church age. Jesus Christ is utilizing his angels in that process, and they are witnesses in this appeal trial to how God is is executing judgment in the church, in Preston City Bible Church, at West Houston Bible Church, at North Stonian Bible Church, at, at First Baptist Church, at First Methodist Church, Jesus Christ is executing judgment on an ongoing basis. There is an evaluation going on of the corporate local church, not just the individuals. And that's what we see in the structure of these letters. Let's just outline what we find here. This is like an indictment sheet. Uh, maybe there's a better word for it. But what happens in each of these is there's a process of evaluation that goes on. There is an opening address for each letter. This is addressed to the church of Ephesus, to the church of Smyrna, Sardis, uh, Thyatira, Pergamum, uh, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then there is a reference to a, a specific attribute or character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with one exception, they all go back to picking up one element in that initial vision in chapter 1. This is so crucial. You can't separate chapter 2 and 3 from chapter 1. It is the Lord as he appears in chapter 1 that is the basis for the judgments, the evaluation, the critique of chapter 2 and 3. So there's a citation of pertinent attributes of Jesus Christ. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? These things as he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And the letter to Smyrna, this he's referred to as the first and the last who was dead and came to life, which is a reference back to uh, verse 17 of chapter 1 and, and ongoing. So there's a reference there to character. Third, there's a commendation. There's a, a, an expression of what the congregation is doing right. There is, which recognizes that Jesus knows full well what's going on in the congregation in their spiritual life. And then there's a condemnation. There's one letter that has no commendation at all. It's just condemnation, which is a description of the state of the church, which censures their behavior. They are being disobedient. And then there is a correction. There is a promise that, and a challenge to repent, to change, because the Lord is coming. For example, in the letter to the church of Ephesus, they're challenged. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, which doesn't mean to uh, put on sackcloth and ashes and get emotional, but it means to change your mind, do the first works, 
or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So it's a call to correction. And a call, and six, there's a call to a universal command to, to hear the words. Not every element is present in every single one, but this is, this structures all of them. And then finally, there is a challenge, a personal promise to the overcomer. He who overcomes will receive, that is, the believer who reaches spiritual maturity will receive certain additional blessings and rewards in heaven as a result of their uh, steadfast obedience to the word. So these aren't like the, you know, Romans and 1st John and Galatians. These are short critique sheets highlighting what a church is doing right, what they're doing wrong, and it's being posted to the heavenly angel so that he's standing there. There's an angel of Preston City Bible Church standing there with a critique sheet and evaluating the congregation according to these standards. And that's true for every church. And we will be held accountable, I as pastor, for these years that I have been here, and you as a congregation will be held accountable for what we do with the doctrine that we've been taught during this time, during our life. And that will be part of the evaluation that takes place at the judgment seat of Christ when the rapture occurs and we are evaluated in terms of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. With our heads bowed, and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this time to study your word this morning. We thank you for an understanding that, that there's accountability, part of uh, the first divine institution, responsibility. That we'll be accountable for our actions as believers, for accountable for how we handle the word, accountable for how we have responded to what we have been taught, and that this will be a part of the evaluation at the Bema Seat of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things. We also pray for anyone here who may not be a believer, uh, who may be unsure or uncertain of their eternal life. This is your opportunity to make that sure and certain, your opportunity to put your faith alone in Christ alone, your opportunity to, to determine that you will avoid eternal condemnation and you will receive God's free gift of eternal life. Right now, right where you sit, you can make that certain. All you need to do is believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study today, that we may recognize that, that our lives are lived out on a, on a universal uh, stage. We're in the midst of, a, of an angelic stadium where our lives are witnesses to your grace, your integrity, uh, your righteousness. And may we be mindful of that in every decision we make. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.